And we're live. Hello, and welcome back to another We Paint Podcasts episode of the First Time Watchers Podcast. Because we like to watch. My name is Tim Costa. I'm Hermano De Silva. And those crickets you hear is the sound of Walter Vinci running errands, so stop asking so many questions. Uh, but joining us tonight, our dear old friend, the man whose bad film takes feel like mob hits from Andrew, uh, writerandrew.com, Andrew Johnson. Welcome back to the show, Andrew. Glad to be here. How are you? I'm I'm well. I'm well. Uh, we we missed you a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. So. So, okay. I I just want to apologize up front uh, because y'all had invited me to come on the show to talk about Enter the Dragon, and I had to cancel last minute because I hadn't had time to rewatch the movie, mm-hmm. and I feel really bad about that, and I'm really really um grateful that you invited me back on the show um because yeah i feel I, I i felt bad that i had made that commitment and then i backed out last minute i hate it when people do that to me so i apologize for any inconvenience that 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 caused you should feel bad and uh, especially for disrespecting uh disre- disrespecting us in such a manner yeah not not good not i, good, I would uh I, I would never want to do that i Deeply, sincerely apologize. I have seen the film for today, though. Excellent. So excellent. Uh, I hope I can. I hope I can regain your trust. Yeah. Uh, ho- hopefully, uh, time will tell, Andrew. Time will tell. I. Uh, how has this year's film, uh, high school film club, been going? Things have been going well. We are wrapping up our first semester. Um, we currently are in the we're, we're examining a single film series and my students decided they wanted to examine the Mission Impossible series. Nice. So we are watching the first three and just looking at how different directors have their own unique take on the character of Ethan Hunt and that whole spy franchise. And so uh, it's going uh, it's going really well. We're having a lot of fun uh, and Next semester, we got a lot of good things in store. I think I might try to introduce my students to the films of Paul Verhoeven. Oh, yeah. Nice. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. I remember last time you were on, you had been going through Paul Verhoeven's films, hadn't you? Yes. Yes. So they'll probably have to get some permission slips signed Mm -hmm. due to some of that adult content. Mm -hmm. But uh, I think they will they'll enjoy Verhoeven and some of that cartoonish over the top gore. Showgirls, baby. Showgirls. Yeah, I don't think I'm going to include that one in our Paul Verhoeven unit. (laughs) Hermano would recommend Showgirls to everybody. I mean, so would I, but probably (laughs) not for that that age group. It's a goddamn masterpiece. Andrew. I wouldn't recommend showgirls to actual showgirls. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, to be fair, it has one of the best sex scenes ever put to film. Absolutely. absolutely. I, lo- I love how uh, Verhoeven knew exactly what he had in in store, and he it's just he just goes for broke there. It's it's amazing. Yep. Uh, anyways, good to have you on board. Uh, in what we like to do on the FTW podcast is find a movie that others have seen, watch it together, and then discuss. These movies could be new, they could be old, or something that's on all of our lists of shame. And if you'd like to send feedback, remember you can always email us at firsttimewatchers at gmail.com. And this episode will be finishing off 2019 by discussing the latest Martin Scorsese film, The Irishman. But before we get into that, it is time for Yay or Nay. Yay! 
This is the part of the show where we discuss what we have seen recently on our own. Andrew, let's talk about how Knives Out is just okay. It is fine. It's 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 all right. Uh, it felt a little bit overlong to me. It didn't feel nearly as snappy or witty as I had heard. Mm. I wouldn't say it's a bad movie. I think it is my least favorite Ryan Johnson film. Now, it is not unusual when it comes to Ryan Johnson's films for me to rewatch them and for them to grow in my my estimation on a rewatch. Mm. But my gut reaction to Knives Out was, eh, it's all right. <laughs> I, I kind of agree with you. I kind of, uh, I'm on the same page where, like, I've only seen his, well, except for The Last Jedi, I've seen all of his other films once. And Brothers uh, Bloom leaves the least impact on me. And I have it ranked right around there, too. Uh, so I, I, I don't know. And it's it's funny because you'd think for someone who is has a rather stable, I'd say, level-headed online presence, and after being attacked by online trolls and alt-right and toxic fans for a couple of years, that he would be a little bit more subtle in how he depicts the same people on screen. Um, but no, he's not, he's not subtle at all with, when it comes to the political discussion, discourse, commentary in this movie. Well, what disappointed me is not the, the fact that the political commentary is unsubtle. I thought that it was a little bit unfocused. I couldn't quite figure out what exactly he was trying to say with his political commentary. And it's interesting you bring up Brothers Bloom. That's another one of his films that's also structured very much like a mystery and you've got all of, you know, this, th- these cons being played on people. And that's a film that the first time I saw it, I was like, "Okay, I I liked it, but it's not great." And then I rewatched it and enjoyed it a lot more the second time. So it's possible that will happen with Knives Out. Uh, but yeah, it didn't leave a, a big impression on me though. I will say there is a monologue that Daniel Craig gives at one point in the film that had me in stitches. Uh, does it so, involve a donut? It, yes, yeah, it does. It's perfect. Yeah, so I agree. I would say that scene alone is worth the price of admission. Uh, sure. Sure. Yeah. Speaking of Daniel Craig, I think he's a standout amongst a, a bunch of great people who great actors who are doing great things. I think everybody is, is, uh, performances are, are pretty good. And, but he stands out probably because of his accent where in the, in the trailer, I think it leaves you like, Oh my gosh, is this going to be able to hold up throughout the whole movie? And it does. He does a great job. Um, because it's also very performative as well with his uh, mannerisms and his actions. When it comes to the mystery, I was never really surprised. Nothing about any reveal or any of how will this person get out of this situation. I I was like, it it all seems so obvious to me or uh, unsurprising. Yeah, there were definitely a few twists that I could see coming from pretty far away. Um, And then there were other twists that I, you know, that they would occur and I would just be like, Okay, I guess that's clever, but I hadn't really grown attached enough to the characters to particularly care. Yeah, no, that's fair. That's fair. I, I yeah, I didn't care for many of the characters. They all the even the the characterizations as well as they're performed were rather hollow and and um, I don't know. They, they just didn't have much depth to them. 
uh, except for Anna de Armas's character, she has the most depth, and, and that's fine. But uh, even then, I, I wanted a little bit more. Uh, and the she has a tick, if you will, of um, an inability to lie with a heavy reveal, and that it it just didn't seem to fit this type of movie for some reason. I, I was really taken aback by it, and it only seemed to serve the purpose of how it ended. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I would agree. Uh, so I guess that's a meh for both of us. But uh, what else did you see? Uh, I have seen the new Sam Mendes film, nineteen seventeen. I don't like the you. new war film. I don't like you at all. Well, sorry, that's just the way it is. <laughs> um, and I would say that it is good. I don't know if I would say it's great. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the story is a little bit lacking i'm not quite sure what uh mendes is really trying to say about war um however in terms of the way it's filmed and the cinematography it is quite a technical achievement and roger deakins once again just knocks it out of the park and if you are a fan of beautiful images i would say definitely go see 1917 when it's released in a couple of weeks. It is really, really just oh. a beautiful, beautiful film. Yeah, unfortunately, it's going to be a limited release in a couple of weeks, and it's going to go wide on the 10th of January. Uh, I'm sure we'll touch on this at the end of the episode, but Hermano, I imagine this is one of your more anticipated films of the rest of the year? Um, yeah, honestly, it wasn't really, but I've heard nothing but the highest of praise for the cinematography and just kind of the structure of the film itself that it's made me a lot more interested. And I've actually, yeah, I've moved it up to a film that I definitely want to see. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, all right. What else, Andrew? Uh, I guess the last thing I want to mention is I finally got a chance to catch up with Jojo rabbit. Oh, have either of you seen this movie? No, no, I'm, I'm, disappointed because i was hoping that if you had seen the film you'd be able to explain to me why this movie exists this is funny because i've seen such varied reactions in which it's either you like what is the point of this movie or other people are heaping praise upon it it feels to me like several different ideas and different films crammed into one. I, you know, the first 15 to 20 minutes, I think, are actually pretty good and quite funny. And then it, the way it develops certain characters just left me kind of baffled. And I found myself just just wondering what is this what is the satirical perspective here why are we being made to laugh at the nazis what is psycho itt really trying to make us think about when it comes to uh the far right and fascism and and how these things uh progress throughout a culture and how people become indoctrinated to believe them um and the movie ended and I just found myself just really confused as to what I had just seen hmm. and what I was supposed to take away from it. Um, and I, yeah, I, I kind of feel like if you're going to make a comedy about the Nazis, you should probably at least have something you're trying to say 
otherwise it's it your movie could just be like a, a 10 minute comedy sketch you know um so yeah i was very very disappointed by jojo rabbit oh that's a shame uh well you know the way things go i'll probably catch up with it in a in a month or two and and be the one that heaps praise upon it and say that you're wrong <laughs> it could be i i do have friends who have seen the film and these are critics that i respect and they really like the movie so the reaction seems to be pretty mixed okay uh well i caught up with stuber and i don't recommend anybody ca- catching up with stuber um the only reason i watched it is because i knew eco wise was in it and even though he was in it for the, i knew he was going to be in it for about five minutes uh i i am an eco wise completionist so i watched stuber uh, I'm not going to spend any time on this, but I will say that it would have been a hundred times better if Camille Nanjiani and a male stripper that he encounters uh, deal with their personal lives throughout the entirety of this movie. That would have been a lot better because that was probably the the best part of this movie, which takes which is about two minutes of it. So I I haven't seen it. I did think that the trailers looked pretty stu- stupid. Stu- stupid. Yeah. Stupid. Stupid. Yeah. Oh boy, Andrew, it's rough. A real rough go, Andrew. <laughs> I'm I'm considering leaving after that. <laughs> <laughs> I but Tim's pick of the week and a movie that I caught up with as part of my best of the decade contender catch up is from 2013, and it is uh, from Studio Ghibli, and it is the Tale of the Princess Kaguya. Have you guys seen this? I have heard of it. It has been on my watch list for quite some time, oh. but I have not yet had a chance to check it out. I highly recommend uh, throwing it up high on your queue because uh, it, it is a wonderful. It is a wonderful, beautiful film, and it's a wonder. The wonder of this movie is its remarkable simplicity. The art style is very, very simple. Uh, the the raw emotions uh, that that are depicted via that art style and uh, the dialogue is just uh, very easy to connect to. And it's built solely on the desire of this one young girl who grows to seek uh, independence uh, in, in her life. So I've had a lot of issues with anime and, and, uh, and the, so some of it deals with the art style. Some of it deals with the cultural differences and trying to connect with the, the stories and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but this one is just very relatable. Like I said, in its simplicity. Uh, and it's it's a, a fantastical tale too. This the the description on IMDb is found inside a shining stalk of bamboo by an old bamboo cutter and his wife. A tiny girl grows rapidly into an exquisite young lady, and the mysterious young princess uh, enthralls all who encounter her. But ultimately, she can must confront her fate, the punishment for her crime. But the, the way it, it's told, the way it unfolds is it. it, it it may have something to do with the fact that me being a father and seeing this young individual grow is, you know, that that connection there, I think, is 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 pretty raw. It, it, one of the great things is that she shuns every expectation thrown at her, uh, which is very empowering. And the ending can really hit you with a wallop because it's it's all built on that relationship that she's uh, fostered over a, a relative short period of time between her and her parents, adoptive parents, if you will. Um, and uh, let me just say that this movie will hate, will make you hate moon gods. Uh, you'll understand when you see it. But a uh, high recommendation for the tale of the Princess Kaguya. It, it will probably make my top 30 of the decade as it stands right now. So it's, it's a great film. Uh, Hermana, what have you caught up with? 
Okay. <clears throat> it's been uh, pretty much all Disney Plus all the time <laughs> at my place. Uh, so I caught up with a bunch of Pixar shorts that I missed because I didn't see uh, the films in the theater. You know, uh, Pixar, mm. I don't know if they still do it, but they used to play those little shorts in, uh, in front of a feature. Yep. Um, so I don't know if all of these played in front or not, but I, I hadn't seen a bunch of them. Um, so the first one I watched was Lava. Oh, God. I hadn't seen that one. Oh, God. I'm so sorry. You didn't... <laughs> I remember you saying you didn't like that one, and I I could see why, because it, it seems like um, the least consequential. I lava of... you. I lava you. See, that's the thing, though. Do, do they actually say that in the song? Because I, I think it says, I love you. Mm. Not I love you. And I was I was lamenting the, the fact that they didn't say I love you. Um, but it's OK. I like the song. It, it got stuck in my head for a couple days. Uh, you know, it's cute, cute little song. But, yeah, it feels like the least consequential. And, and you'll know why when I start mentioning some of these other ones. Um, now, that one didn't seem analogous to anything. Like, it's just kind of like this cute little love story between, you know, a volcano you, looking you gonna, for love. Are you going to mention Bao? Uh, no, Bao is on there, but I've, I had already, already seen that one. But there are some other ones that I'm not sure if they're just shorts. They, they're they under the Pixar shorts banner on Disney+. Plus. So I don't know if they're all Pixar. Wasn't paying a, you know 100% attention. But uh, there was one called Float. Have you ever seen that one? Uh, remind me what it's about. Uh, it's about a father who's raising a kid who can float. Hmm, I don't think so. Uh, and you know, it's analogous to a you know uh, a parent raising a kid with special needs. Uh, so that one was really well done, and there's going to be a common theme through a lot of these. And I'll I'll get to the you know my summation uh, of what I thought of of them all, um, watching it with my kids and stuff. But there's another one called Kit Bull, huh. uh, which is um, a stray cat who uh, runs across a pit bull and uh, the pit bull tries to befriend the stray cat, but the cat is, you know, a stray and is just fearful of everything. And, uh, you know, they, it's, it's just a cute little story about essentially not judging a book by its cover. Um, there's another one called um, Pearl, P-U-R-L, which is about a, a ball of yarn, a literal ball of yarn that is starting her first day at a uh, a business called Bro Capital uh, or something like that. Not the most subtle, but essentially about um, she has like this, you know, she's a, she's a female ball of yarn <laughs> and she's starting at a, a company that's completely run by men. Hmm. And um, you know, you can, you can see just based on that initial setup, you could probably guess where it's going and where it ends. But um, and I think there was one other one I saw in there, but I can't, oh, uh, there was one called Luna about, oh, yeah. uh, three generations of family that are tasked with, uh, cleaning up the moon. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if you guys have seen that one, but, yeah. um, basically all of these, the one thing that all of these have in common is that they're great little conversation starters with your kids oh. that, you know, they all have like messages, obviously that, you know, you're supposed to take away from them and, they're not the most subtle because they are being directed for, for you know a kid audience, so it's it's a bit easier for them to understand what's happening. And you know you can still have a conversation with your kid though about like you know you know the the pros about like the message and like you know why it's important and all that stuff. So 
you know, I would recommend all those on their own as like, you know, things that are on Disney Plus that I think are pretty good. The only one that got a bit dark and my kids were a little upset by was Kit Bull because surprisingly it's I don't it's not really a spoiler to say, but the 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 pit bull initially, while the kit the kitten is scared of it, it's because the the pit bull is being used in a dog fighting ring. Oh. And it's a bit more graphic than I thought it was gonna be for um for a Disney, you know, you know disney plus little short cartoon that was under the pixar banner it's it's a lot heavier subject material than a lot of the other ones Mm. uh though float comes close to with a father with a special needs kid um and then lastly i watched so i I would recommend all those um lastly i watched something on disney plus that i didn't know existed i'm not sure if you guys have heard of it it's called pixar in real life Mm. basically the setup for this one is it's a reality show on uh Disney Plus, where they take specific moments or characters from Pixar films and place them in real life uh, in New York. Oh, I had heard about this. That's right. I, I'd seen, uh, yeah, that Wally is uh, remote control, right? Yeah, I, I didn't see that one. I've only watched one episode so far, but they did show previews to some of the other setups for the uh, the Pixar films. And Wally was one of them where they get like a, I guess, a true to size Wally and um having remote controlled around the streets of new york uh there's another one uh that i saw the preview for with uh dash from the incredibles yes but a where, live, like a real live person though right it's a it's a yeah it's an actual kid it's that weird. looks like dash like he's made up to look like dash and he's asking strangers on the street to uh time how fast he can run it sounds weird and then he, what sounds weird it is weird. I mean, it's a very, it's like a Disney version of what a reality show is. Like, it's very cutesy, very family friendly. Uh, you know, there's, it's kind of like a reactionary type thing where, you know, people, it, the whole premise is to get these honest reactions for people watching these things play out. Uh, the episode we watched was uh, they placed the console from Inside Out in a park in uh, New York. Oh. And watched people walk up to it and just start pressing the buttons and moving levers and stuff. And then, unbeknownst to them, there were actors in the park that would react accordingly. Huh. Like, they must have been given, like, cues as to, like, what buttons were being pressed. So they would react accordingly. Like, if they pressed, like, the anger button, like, people would start fighting in the park. Huh. They pressed the depression. Uh, what was the other one? Disgust. Yep. You know, people would start acting disgusted. You know, like, it was that's the whole premise. They're all short, too. Like, the one we watched was like maybe 10 minutes long huh. tops and it's all family friend. Like I said, it's rated G. Um, but it's cute for the kids. Like my kids had a ball with it cause they, you know, they, they enjoyed inside out and they were just having fun with, uh, you know, people walking up and just pressing buttons and, and reacting, um, you know, all amused when people would, you know, start acting certain ways. So it's cute. You know, there's a lot of little, you know, hidden things on Disney plus. I, I hadn't heard of this. I just kind of came across it by, browsing on disney plus but there's a lot of little hidden gems in there aside from all the like the the well-known stuff so i'd recommend people that have disney plus like dig in there a long long time ago there was a volcano living all alone in the middle of the sea sat high above his bed watching all the couples play and wishing that he had someone too and from his lover came this song of hope 
that he sang out loud every day for years and years. I have a dream I hope will come true. You're here with me and I'm here with you. I wish that the earth see the sky up above will send me someone to love Oh, look, our co-host is getting sued. Uh, you know, honestly, I'm surprised it hasn't happened sooner. Are we the underside of damages? Oh, oh here, here it is. What's it say? Uh, it looks like as part of his grassroots campaign to get famous, he took up painting houses. You mean like in The Irishman? No, he just wrote the word thwacku over and over again in various sizes. But you know what show won't take you to court? The In Session Film Podcast. That's right, Tim. The In Session Film Podcast is JD and Brendan. Mm, what am I seeing? Brendan's court briefs, if you know what I mean. What was that, Tim? What? Nothing, nothing. Anyways, uh, each week the In Session Film Podcast chooses a movie to review. Then creates a top three list based on what they just saw. And this week the In Session Film Podcast reviews Ryan Johnson's latest, Knives Out. And continues their Ingmar Bergman retrospective with Fanny and Alexander. You can find their show on Apple Podcasts by searching for, you guessed it, the In Session Film Podcast. Or on the web at InSessionFilm.com. So if you're in the mood for more great movie reviews and discussion, then check out the In Session Film Podcast on Apple Podcasts. Or on the web at InSessionFilm.com. So where is your co-host anyway? He's probably hiding. Did you see what's written here? Written where? It's not him that's being sued. It's the show. What? Now she was so ready to meet him above the sea as he sang his song of hope for the last time. I have a dream I hope will come true. You're here with me, and I'm here with you. I wish that the earth, sea, and the sky up above will send me someone to love. Okay, now it is time for a semi-regular installment of Scorching Hot Takes with Andrew Johnson. I got fire in my pants, you are about to burn your hands. Yourself, you burn. Good afternoon, good evening, and good night. This is where Andrew burns us all with his opinions that are sure to leave some marks. Andrew, uh, I don't know, uh, p- paint us with a hot take. Okay, I'll uh, I'll do my best. Uh, I don't have anything anything too hot today. Um, I don't have any. I don't want. I don't want to really go too in depth on this. But have either of you been watching The Mandalorian? I have. So what do you think of The Mandalorian so far? Um, I just watched the fourth, I believe, episode last night. I caught up. So I'm caught up, I think, with all the available episodes. And I'd say that started off really, really strong for me. I think it was not necessarily low expectations, but I, I wasn't sure what a Star Wars show could potentially be. And I think it started strong with, you know, kind of the obvious Western slash uh, samurai, lone wolf and cub, you know, vibes. I was really enjoying that. 
and then um, I'd say the the end of the third episode and into the I think the majority of the fourth episode, I felt like they felt like sort of throwaway filler type stuff. And I, I wasn't as positive on those, but I'm still enjoying the show overall. I think overall, I, I share your feelings about the show, but there's one element that I'm really conflicted about. Um, and there's a, a character that by the end of the fourth episode, I kind of wanted to murder. And that character is Baby Yoda. <laughs> 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 the internet seems to have just gone crazy over Baby Yoda. And I have to admit, when when Baby Yoda first showed up at the end of that first episode, I was like, oh, well, okay, that's kind of interesting. And then I thought, wait a second. Baby Yoda is supposed to be ha- how old? 50 years old? Uh, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. There's no way a species could be that young for 50 years uh, in terms of their level of maturity. It, it just doesn't make sense. But you know what? I'll go with it. Andrew, and the second wait, episode, wait, wait, Andrew, I, Andrew, Andrew, you yes. do realize that Yoda died when he was 900 years old. Look, look, clearly Yoda had a secret love child or something else is going on. But there's some sort of baby Yoda and it is a baby that is 50 years old. And I'm sorry if 50-year-old Yoda is the equivalent of a human one-year-old, that means adult Yoda at 900 would be the equivalent of an 18-year-old human. And I'm just like, no, the the math does not make sense here. But putting that aside, (laughs) I thought that the second episode of The Mandalorian was pretty good. Baby Yoda just kind of sits there looks cute, does a few interesting things. And then the third episode came around and baby Yoda still just was kind of there looking cute. And then the fourth episode happened in which there are shots of baby Yoda messing with the Mandalorian's buttons on his ship. And another shot of baby Yoda sipping on some soup. And I found myself thinking, Baby Yoda is not a character. Baby Yoda is a meme. Baby Yoda is a completely corporate-designed product designed to go viral, designed to get people excited about the show, and that is all it is. Baby Yoda is an empty, superficial addition to the Star Wars mythology. And if they don't do something with this character soon. I might tear my hair out. Sounds like we a... already have a main character whose face we never see. So essentially he's just an action figure. And now you've got this other character that's just meant to be a weekly meme. Sounds like a porg to be. You it's know what? Porg, it's it's baby grew. I mean, all yep. the all three of these things save like they basically serve the same purpose. <laughs> It's like yeah. for everyone to guffaw and be like, aw, aw. <laughs> like, I mean, I, I can't really deny anything that Andrew has mentioned because everything that he's set up as far as what Baby Yoda is, is pretty much true. Like, he, it, you know, it's it feels like a, a thing to sell toys or to get people 
online making memes and just falling in love and tripping over themselves about how cute it is and you know how wonderful it is to see this this familiar character as a baby and all that stuff but i don't know like i i i am kind of mixed on him because i i do think he adds something to the show in the same way that the kid in lone wolf and cub adds to that you know that samurai story um but I don't know. I, I think I kind of agree with Andrew where I, I feel like they need to do something more interesting than to just have them tag along all the time and, and just act like a kid. Like I, I want them to somehow explain how this is possible. And I'm not sure right now, at least it doesn't feel like they're that interested in doing that. Like he's just kind of a, a mini plot device to move from episode to episode, you know? So I don't know. And to be honest, I think what Andrew is experiencing right now is, have you guys ever heard of cuteness aggression? <laughs> no. <laughs> I, f- I feel like Andrew's suffering from cuteness aggression. <laughs> Perhaps a little bit. And and the thing is, I like Star Wars. I would consider myself a pretty big Star Wars fan. And yet, as I've mentioned before on the show, I'm very cynical when it comes to Disney and how they're approaching things like the Marvel Universe and how they've, they've handled some aspects of Star Wars. And while I get that the Mandalorian is riffing on Westerns and samurai stories and things like Lone Wolf and Cub, when week after week the main thing the internet seems to be discussing in regards to the Mandalorian is freaking Baby Yoda – and that's it. We're not really talking about the story. We're not talking about the style. It's really just Baby Yoda seems to be the main thing that I that I keep seeing people talking about. And it just feels like this was this was by design. There's that cynical part of me that says, oh, this is what was always intended with Baby Yoda, that it really doesn't serve a thematic or artistic purpose as much as a commercial one. And that really depresses me. But I hope I'm wrong. I hope things will change as the season progresses. I'm I'm just here to say that right now I'm starting to get very, very angry whenever I see Baby Yoda. I can guarantee one thing, at least for episode four, Baby Yoda would not be what Tim would be talking about. Let's just say that. Spoiler free. <laughs> okay. There's a certain cameo, Andrew. I don't know if you recognized who the actor was, but... Tim would be all over that. Yes, I did. I did recognize that. Tim's a huge fan. Hey 
everybody. I'm Kai. And I'm Heather. And we are the hosts of MILFCAST, the Man I Love Films podcast, the unofficial official podcast of com. This is the podcast where we like to talk about what we've been watching, talk about movies, but mainly we just like to drink, be silly, and play a whole bunch of games. So we think every other week you should grab a drink, snuggle up, and let us make sweet love to your ears. Otherwise, we'll make sweet love to your couch. So come and find us on iTunes. Just search for MILFCAST. This podcast is a proud member of the Lamb Podcasting Network. Find the network at largeassmovieblogs.com. Okay, let's talk about The Irishman. Some people, not me. They think that you might... I might. You might be demonstrating a failure to show appreciation. I'm not showing appreciation. According to, you know, some people... I went to school for five fucking years. Yes, you did. Five fucking years. I didn't name one fucking name. You did the right thing. I did the right thing. You did the right thing. Sat there every day with that whining cocksucker from New Jersey talking to me about his woes, his problems. And all I wanted to do was finish my ice cream in peace. This cocksucker shows up at a meeting. 15 minutes late, wearing fucking shorts. Who wears shorts to a meet? Nobody. That's right. Nobody. I'm not showing appreciation. It's not me, according to some people. No, I know it's not you. Some people. Some people say I'm not showing appreciation. Well, then fuck them. I'm trying to help you, Jim. I know you. But nobody threatens often. And just to warn people ahead of time, this will be a spoiler-filled discussion, so beware. The plot, a mob hitman recalls his possible involvement in the slaying of Jimmy Hoffa. Uh, The director, Martin Scorsese, the actors, Robert De Niro, Al Pacino, Joe Pesci, and quite a few others. Uh, Andrew, uh, how did you experience and uh, enjoy or not enjoy this movie? Well, once again, Tim, I just want to say thanks again for inviting me back on the show. Uh, after I missed our appointment a few weeks ago for Enter the Dragon. Uh, I'm really excited to be talking about this movie today, even though ultimately I had some mixed feelings about it. Um, You know, the de-aging technology here is really quite something. Uh, It's really incredible how far the technology has come. And it's unfortunate, I think, that most people won't be able to see this movie in the way I think the director would prefer that it be seen on a big screen with the full 120 frames per second. But even in 60 frames per second, the images here are some of the crispest I've ever seen in a movie, just in terms of the amount of detail. And while I'm not sure he was the best choice for the lead role, I think that Will Smith does a pretty decent job, especially as his younger self. 
you know, the story isn't really all that original or exciting, and you can tell it's been in development for, for quite some time. But as a tech demo, especially with the de-aging stuff, I think that this is, is really Just something special. Wondering what I should stop you here. Uh, this, is, this is awful. It's like, I'm, you know I'm, I'm sorry? You're, you're really, you're really uh, pushing your desire to be on the show in the future, aren't you? This is, this why? The, why? This is, I'm sorry. What's going on? This is the worst. Hey, Hermato, uh, what, what did you think of... Uh, of the Irishman, like let me—I uh, know, I know that you had serious reservations about the length of this movie, and that you even doubted the fact uh, you would even uh, watch it in one sitting. Yeah, uh, not for my uh, lack of attention span, but more so for my lack of free time. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I could definitely, in the past, I, I remember watching—I think I watched the uh, back-to-back extended cuts of Lord of the Rings. So, uh, not opposed to watching long uh long films i'm just i'm not the man i used to be i have kids now <laughs> um but i did watch it in one sitting wow. um i watched it from like seven o'clock in the afternoon afternoon the evening <laughs> the evening i should say to uh 10:30 at night and then i was tired the next day in case anybody wants to know because you had to go to bed at 10 30 <laughs> yeah i'm old okay anyways um yeah, you know what? To be fair, I, I was scared of the runtime, but um, at the end of the day, I, I do remember looking a couple times, like, how far am I into this film now? Yeah. Uh, at least two times. But ultimately, it really, I think he did the, the, the best he could, and he was very economical with how he uh, laid the film out because it didn't feel... Like I was watching a three and a half hour film. I, I, I think, you know, for lack of better words, you know, it's she has been given tons of credit over the years and and very recently as well for her career and her involvement with Martin Scorsese. But I think we need to give credit to Thelma Schumacher for her editing uh, techniques and, and abilities. Absolutely, because I think it was a pretty well edited film. Now, I hope that we can all agree. I know Andrew was making light of uh, de aging technology. But and I was, you know, I've seen some good, some bad. I was a, I was a, a defender of the recent Star Wars stuff with uh, Graham Off Tarkin. I thought he looked amazing, but you know, not everyone agreed. Um, but you know, you know, some of the Marvel films, like the Tony Stark one in uh, Civil War, I thought looked kind of awful. <laughs> um, but I would say that the only time it stood out to me was there's a flashback to Robert De Niro's character in uh, Vietnam. Oh, okay. And the only reason it stood out is because instead of taking his face when he was younger, like from, say, Taxi Driver or the Godfather films, they decided to take his current face (laughs) and basically de-wrinkle it and slightly reshape it, I guess, in a way to make look more youthful. Because I know what Robert De Niro looked like as a young man, and it just didn't fit. And it stood out on that level, but not necessarily that it looked bad. That I I just, it was, I don't know, I just couldn't, you know, I just couldn't get over the fact that this is not what he looks like when he was younger. It it just kind of bothered me. But other than that... Well, I think that's the thing that we experience nowadays, is that we when you were dealing with act, de-aging actors... We have so much history and knowledge of their previous work that we've grown accustomed to, you know, just knowing in our heads what they used to look like. 
that when you change them to make them what they didn't used to look like, then it's distracting. Yeah, that's that's kind of how I yeah. felt. And like, even though I, I, you know, I didn't like the way it looked overall in Civil War for Robert Downey Jr., at least it looked like they basically took his head from like, you know, weird science and placed it on his body mm-hmm. now. So because I knew what he looked like when he was younger. So if they just tried to take his face now and just you know, smooth the wrinkles out. They, I, I'd be like, well, that's not what he looked like when he was younger. He, you know, you just take, you know, smoothing his skin yeah. versus, you know, trying to make it look like what he, I don't know. It's a nitpick, but sure. I, I will defend absolutely wholeheartedly the rest of the de-aging stuff because I thought it looked amazing mm-hmm. and I didn't even notice it for, I'd say 90% of the film. Um, and I guess I'll just say that I, Overall, I, I liked the film a lot. I, I won't say that I loved it. It's like impossible for me to not automatically compare it to the two other films that I've seen in his filmography that are similar to it, like Goodfellas and Casino. Uh, I think if out of those three, this is for me the lesser of those three. I think the other ones have a polish that this one lacks a bit. I think there were a few times in this film where, I don't know, like I felt like it, it was just lacking a certain um, fluidity, uh, style, um, just, I don't know, energy that those other two films I think just had in spades. Oh, energy. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's funny though, that between, um, between Scorsese and Tarantino this year, they make rather thematically similar movies. Don't you, don't you think? Yeah. And you know, I, maybe that's the point is like this mm-hmm. story maybe didn't, you know, align uh, like those other films did with like, you know, he could do those editing techniques where he does basically do his Martin Scorsese thing. Like I've, I felt very much like these three films are like Martin Scorsese, the way I feel about Wes Anderson, where he's very good at this well, one thing. Well, that's the thing, though. I've seen people uh say that this is Scorsese putting this genre in the grave for himself. Yeah, I could kind of see that. Um, but he also like just reminds us, like it's almost like he's reminding us like, yeah, I made those other two films as well because mm-hmm. there were moments in this that I was completely reminded of Goodfellas in one scene towards the end with, with Jimmy Hoffa, right? Uh, which was like almost straight out of Goodfellas. Uh, and maybe it happened that way according to this guy's story, but I mean, the way he he frames it and the way it plays out is like so similar that I'm like, he's it's like he's saying, hey, hey, remember I did Goodfellas and this very same this very same scene was like in that film. Um, and there was other moments too where it reminded me of Casino and Goodfellas, and you know, <clears throat> that's not not that it's a bad thing, but like I could just tell like I'm like, oh yeah, this is just like those films, but not as good. Um, and you know. Uh, that's fine and all, but like, it, I don't know. It, it, it's hard when you, you're directly calling back to a film that's better. You did it better in, and uh, this film just doesn't do anything or add anything to that. Well, uh, it's, I find it uh, really uh, strikingly different than Goodfellas in terms of this movie is dealing with consequences of actions in many ways throughout a long, long period of time, whereas Goodfellas isn't isn't concerned the the main character isn't concerned about consequence and isn't isn't really uh ever have to confront that until the end of the movie 
And in this one, he's dealing with the consequences of his actions throughout his entire life, especially through his daughter's eyes. And it, his daughter is the, you know, later played by Anna Paquin, is, is the one that's the moral compass, uh, uh, judging him almost, uh, almost as uh, like a godlike character, judging him throughout the movie. And he sees that. So he's always wrestling with that in his mind. And so I, I and that's what I think is great about this movie and its deliberate pace as well. And, you know, it's funny. I, Yes, it's long. Yes, at times you feel how long this movie is. And yes, I use the word deliberate, but I never feel that it's ever unearned. I think he, the, uh, you've touched on at the beginning, is that they totally earn every single minute of this movie. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, it's a, it's a it's a long story to tell. And I feel like, yeah, he needed this amount of time to tell this story because I, I don't feel like they're normally when I, you know, a lot of times we, we often complain on this on the show, like, Oh man, that movie was so long. They could have cut like 20, mm. 30 minutes out of this film that I thought I felt was unnecessary. Like I, I felt like I probably needed more information. Yeah. Like in I, I feel like I need to watch like a documentary or something if, on on Jimmy Hoffa and this whole, you know, his life and stuff. Because well, like I, I felt like, you know, even though they focus a lot, uh, I think mostly the the latter two hours on him and you know, his whole deal, but I feel like if I, it probably would have helped me to know more about like, you know, the political climate back then, like Jimmy Hoffa in, in his like star in, in his, you know, uh, becoming who he was and stuff like that, because they touch on it here and there. But then it goes away so fast that I'm like, well, I, okay. don't, I don't think that was the point. I don't think it was really about Jimmy Hoffa. It was about De Niro's character. And if anything you want, I wanted more of it was more of his his history, his upbringing, maybe a little bit uh, to be to be able to understand why he would act in such ways uh, uh, in regards to his family. Like, like when he when he takes his daughter to after the 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 shopkeeper pushes her or whatever, and he beats yeah. the crap out of him in front of her. Like, did did he experience the same thing? Did his father do something similar in front of him? Is that a learned thing? Is that how he he got his moral compass? Like, what would what would uh, lead him to go from war to being a blue collar worker as a truck driver to, you know, knowingly join uh, forces or or knowingly work for uh, the mob? <laughs> that that was, you know, like what was his moral compass leading up to that point? I, I was I was curious about that more. So, but it, it didn't really diminish any of the movie for me. That that's the the part that most reminded me of Goodfellas because you, his character in this film and Ray Liotta's character are very similar. They're like coming from like an outsider perspective for the most part. Like they're not Italian, or in this case, he's not also not Italian. He's you know he's Irish or whatever, um, and they're both thrust into this life well, and it's basically their downfall like well, you say thrust, I mean, the, the, you, you say thrust but it, I, I, it's clear it, we see uh ray liotta's character from a young age he always wanted to be um, he says it he literally says it. i always wanted to be a gangster <laughs> yeah like, well yeah because of the way he grew up and he he saw this on a day-to-day -day basis but he had also had you know a family you get to see a, a little bit more of his family life where like he had you know, a mother that was trying to like you know, not let him be part of this and stuff like that. Where Robert De Niro, you don't really get that, but you get the sense that he's trying to insert himself in this. So like he sees like the some sort of plus side to it where he's like, you know, he's initially introduced as a, a meat truck driver and like he wants to like, you know, give cuts of meat to some 
mobster or whatever and that's how he gets introduced to like all these other higher level guys and stuff like that but like i don't know it just felt so similar in the way that you know ray Liotta's character hmm. starts up in in goodfellas and i'm like it's it's it feels like such a similar story and i don't know even even to the point of where it it ends it it feels a bit like um like goodfellas like where you know there's like the beginning there's like the middle which is like all the you know the 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 I guess the plus side the mm-hmm. you know high you know everything's great and like you know we're mobsters we're doing hits like living the high life and um and then you know everything comes crashing down yeah, you know even, like even despite that he still kind of got away with it, it, it legally speaking you know even though he spent well, some time uh, he, it, it depends on who you believe <laughs> right. I mean we haven't I mean isn't it the FBI that doesn't really believe that like he did like 90 percent of this hmm. like he, he he boasts a bit more than you know he was actually in, involved in possibly possibly yeah um, so i mean it's it's hard to tell too because it's like it feels like it's coming from a this is like an unreliable narrator yeah because you're like well did, is it this really the way it happened is hmm. is i mean i know martin because is basically adapting his book right so he's he's basically telling it as the book tells it but like uh, i mean i feel like in the little that I know, I'm not going to you know, sit here and claim to be like an expert or anything on it. But like, I remember hearing that, you know, there was a lot of dispute, like even amongst like other mobsters were like, no, he didn't do that. I know the guy who did that. And like the FBI is like, yeah, he didn't do like, mm. like 75 to 80% of this. Like it's all bullshit. And you know, it, it's hard too to like watch the, the film knowing that because it's hard to, you know, I think there are moments where you're like, you know, like you said, with a daughter witnessing all this and, and stuff like that. I'm like, well, did she actually witness any of this? Did she actually have a, a rough life with this guy? Because, you know, we're hearing that in real life, he didn't really do any of this. But see, um, I, I was never really concerned about what was in, you know, real life or whatever. Whether I, I honestly never even uh, entered my mind that this was an unreliable narrator. I, I don't until you mentioned it. I don't think I even remembered uh, that this was based off of an of a book. Uh, so. Uh, I, I took everything at relative face value within the context of the film itself. There was never a point where I thought he, as the narrator within the movie, was was an unreliable source or fudging any facts or anything like that. Uh, I don't think the the film really frames that that even as a possibility. But I'm saying, like, in actuality, and like you know the you know outside of the film, knowing having that mm-hmm. knowledge in the back of my mind, it certainly didn't help. You know, knowing that like, oh, this might be all bullshit and like none of this stuff actually happened. And, you know, especially knowing that it's based on this guy's sort of autobiography or, you know, story of his supposed mob life as a hitman and stuff like that. And like, you know, apparently it affected his family life and he had a strained relationship with his daughter. And I'm like, all right, so if there's a potential that none of this happened and he wasn't this, you know, big hitman that screwed up his family life, like what else was it that possibly could have caused a strain in his relationship with his daughters or, you know, that he wasn't a good father for. Hmm. Well, speaking of strained relationships, is Andrew still here? I think Andrew. Yeah. yeah. Uh, sorry. Are, are we not talking about Gemini man? Oh God, are we still doing <laughs> yeah. this? Are we still doing this? Uh, what, are, what are we talking about today? Oh boy. This is, this is painful. This is a real painful episode. Andrew, this is not the comedy club that you used to bomb at. <laughs> So, which movie are we talking about? Oh, please talk about The Irishman, for God's sakes. Oh, okay. Okay. So, um, 
so what really stood out to me about that film is the way that it sort of foreshadows that kind of capitalist gangster movie, you know, that that Scorsese would make in The Wolf of Wall Street. Um, you know, you've got your main character who's just this really awful guy. He kills a lot of people. That, that's clear from the very opening scene. And he's kind of making his living off of these really bad things that he's doing, just like Jordan Belfort in The Wolf of Wall Street. Is this another bit and coming? This is another bit, I think it? what's I think what's great about this movie is that we really get to see him start to reflect on his oh life and realize that maybe he isn't such a good guy and that he's made these bad decisions. He's got to live with the consequences and he tries to rectify them. And a lot of the movie is about that inner conflict. And mm. we've got our lead actor, Some of the you know, RD, good old Robert Downey. Mm. He's incredible in this lead good. role. And is I'm he... actually kind of surprised that Scorsese <laughs> lately has been so dismissive of Marvel movies <sighs> because going by this first one, there's just, I think, Andrew. a lot of potential Andrew. for some compelling human stories please. amidst all of the action please. and explosions. Andrew, please, please. <laughs> Say something about the Irishman, please, Andrew. Oh, the, the Irish man. The uh, Irish man, not I Iron uh, Man. Okay. God, this is okay. The, you know, this is the worst. <laughs> this is the worst episode. No, honestly, um, you guys you guys really summed it up pretty well. I I really enjoyed the Irishman. I think that the final 45 minutes of this movie make the film. Um it is a very long movie. And I did find myself looking at my watch a few times and being like, okay, I get it. It's a mob movie. You know, we've seen this before from Scorsese. And then that final 45 minutes hits and the whole tone of the film shifts. And I, I, it immediately, once I realized what Scorsese was doing, it was, it totally changed how I viewed the rest of the film. Um, and I think that the final shot of the Irishman is just pitch perfect. I've heard I've heard um, this from others, and I'm curious what you mean by that. This is the one in the hallway of the nursing home looking through the partially closed door into his room? Yes. So for the last 45 minutes of the movie, we see how completely alone this guy is, that as a result of his actions, he's completely alienated himself from his family. Uh, his children are scared of him. And you realize that because we've been been focusing so much on him and his life of crime, what's happened off screen, that's the real story of the film. The way in which this has seeped into the rest of his life and how he doesn't want to acknowledge that. And we don't see that on screen because this is his story and this has not been a concern for him for most of his life. And then in those final moments when we really start to grasp the full weight of that and just how incredibly alone he is, um, he, you know, he's sitting with the priest and he asked the priest to leave the door open. And I thought to, to me, this seemed like an intentional reference to the final scene of the Godfather, yes. which ends with his with um, Al Pacino's wife in the film looking right. at him in the office, uh, looking at Michael Corleone as his one of his bodyguards or one of his uh, hired thugs closes the door and it becomes this 
symbol of their separation, that he has become fully immersed in this life of crime and she has been cut out. And we see the inverse of that in The Irishman, where this this guy is so desperate for companionship, he asks for the door to be left open. And the priest leaves and he's just sitting there all alone, waiting for death. He has nothing to do in his life anymore except pick out coffins for himself. And I was trying to figure out why the camera doesn't move from its final position. Um, And it seems to me that if Scorsese was really trying to hammer home how alone this guy is, you know, it would end with the camera itself moving to the side and, and leaving him completely alone. And yet the camera stays on him with that door open just a crack. And he still has that visual connection with the audience. And I just feel like maybe that's a bit of Scorsese's religious background. I was I was going to ask you about even regards to the rest of the movie in terms of Scorsese's relationship with religion. I, I definitely feel like you can see some of that coming through, especially in the ending. I mean, it's common knowledge that Scorsese at one point considered becoming a priest, uh, but he decided to become a film director instead. And the movie ends with the priest leaving Frank Sheeran, but the door is open and the audience is still there. So it's almost as if, I, I guess you could interpret it as Scorsese trying to say, this guy is completely alone. He's trapped almost in this purgatory. And yet maybe there's still hope. Maybe there's a little bit of hope because that door is is still open a crack and the camera hasn't completely left him. I mean, that would be an optimistic interpretation. But the way he's structured the movie and the way he frames those final moments, I just think there, there's so much packed into that visually uh that i i just think it's the perfect way to end the film and i would say the the final shots of his last three films have just been perfect in what they communicate um and i do think that this ending really does kind of beg the question do we need any more mob movies do we need any more mafia films i mean this this he he ends the film just with this feeling of complete devastation and loneliness and there's no glamor in it at all. And, uh, yeah, I think really he's, he's kind of said all he needs to say at this point. You know, I agree. And well, I, when you say, do we need any more? I'm like, yes, we always need movies. We always, no matter what the the subject or topic uh, is, but it's funny that you mentioned the end of, uh, relating this to the end of the first Godfather, where I had in my mind the third Godfather film, where it's very similar with Al Pacino as an old man all alone, who's, uh, it, you know, it, it, he he's much less concerned about the consequences of his actions, but you see similar things in terms of what was all this done at, at, at what cost was it all done, you know, and and what. What did it lead to? Just two men alone dying by themselves. And that's all it is. And, and I, I, that's why I compared the entirety of The Irishman to the entirety of the Godfather trilogy. I thought that was the, you know, clearly the, the, the Scorsese creating that 
Godfather trilogy in his own image, you know, and like I said, focusing again on the consequences of individual actions and the result of the people that De Niro is associated with. Uh, what did you guys think about the score of this movie? The score is really interesting because I found it to be a mix of like noir and spaghetti western. Did you catch that, Hermano? To be honest, uh, I I don't even remember the score. To be honest, I, well, I it's subtle. I think that's why. Yeah, maybe because I uh, I don't know. I think I was just so focused on the story that the 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 score was just one of those scores that just didn't overtake anything else that was really happening. So it wasn't anything that really stood out. It wasn't like bombastic in any way. Like I, I didn't pick up on like what you just mentioned, uh, like a Western type thing motif or whatever. But um, yeah, the score really didn't stand out for me. Um, but what about the performances? I, the performances for you? Oh, fantastic! Like I thought, everyone across the board was incredible. Uh, like I said, there were a few um, like parts where I'm like, oh, really? Like I, I felt like I, I don't understand why that's the scene, like the scene you already mentioned with uh, him taking his daughter to that, that uh, market and beating up that guy. That scene played so weird to me because it just felt like, I don't know. It didn't feel like a a forceful, impactful scene, like what's happening should be, but the way it was like playing out just felt, um, I don't know. It, It was just lacking something for me. It didn't have like the same, um, you know, th- there have been similar scenes in his other films where I felt like they they had that impact. They had that that brutality to it, where this one just felt it felt like an old man kicking another old man. You know what I mean? Like it, <laughs> it just it didn't come across for me. OK, well, um, I, I maybe if maybe that's because you're right. And he is an unreliable narrator. And so in his memory, the incident is not as brutal as it likely was in reality. Yeah, Perhaps. I did have another a different reading of that that final scene, though, um, where for me, it, it felt more like a callback to his relationship with Jimmy Hoffa, because there's a couple times I think he stays with Jimmy Hoffa. And anytime Jimmy Hoffa leaves the room, he closes the door, but not all right. the way. He leaves it slightly open. Right. As Correct. if even even yeah. with Frank there, he he needs eyes on people all the time. Mm-hmm. Like, I think that was the point. And then, like, the other scene that you mentioned, Tim, which is the one that I, the two of them in jail, uh, dying as old men, essentially, mm-hmm. or specifically the Joe Pesci character. Like, I thought it was analogous to the story he tells in Vietnam to um, his character in the beginning of the film. And right. one of the first meetings they have where he tells one of his war stories where, you know, they would tell us to take these guys out into the woods. They wouldn't tell us to shoot them, but we knew what they meant. And, you know, he's like, oh, I never understood why these guys, they must have known what was coming, but they would dig those holes anyway. Well, and they would they would dig them uh, very well. They would use their best effort yeah. and continue to dig uh, to ho- hoping that, you know, the there would be a better outcome. And yeah. and I think that them trying to make the best out of it in in prison, you see a few of these things. You see a few of these moments like when Jimmy Hoffa's in prison, he's he's being served this grand Sunday. You see this, the time that this person takes making a Sunday for yeah. him. And, and yeah, it's cause he has connections and all that kind of stuff, but still he's making the best out of it. You see the, the, the meal that uh, Pesci and De Niro are having and, and making the best out of it and, yeah. and, and the wine and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. It, it's, it's really interesting. 
Yeah, it's funny that he doesn't, throughout the course of his life, he doesn't see the irony in that story Mm. and that he's essentially fallen into the same hole. You know, he's digging himself into the same hole, like his family is suffering, like uh, specifically his children. Uh, He divorces his first wife, like, um, you know, he's he's doing all these really awful things all in service of um you know uh joe pesci and the higher ups he's always separate from his family too like his his family are are eating a meal or watch they're watching tv uh af, you know after hoffa's death or disappearance and yeah. he, he comes in and he's he's separate from them they're all huddled together yeah. essentially he's separate and when he does join them he's at the, his own chair and somebody moves out of his chair and yeah. he doesn't come close to them. He sits behind that person until that person gets out of the chair. There's other moments where, like, uh, another um, Anna Paquin confrontation scene in the kitchen while he's eating cereal, she is in the doorway to the room. And the way the camera moves is perfect. That camera movement, just the pivot yeah. move, it, 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 along with the look in Anna Paquin's face, uh, while not saying a word, it, it speaks volumes still. It, it's really amazing how much of a weight that her presence has in his life and in this movie. I think, I think that there's it's it's so well done, and I think a lot of it, it isn't just performative, but also the way we're, we'll go back to the editing again and how yeah. in, in the in the moments that we see the 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 small chunks throughout the the movie that we're constantly reminded that she's there that she's a presence uh, yeah. and it's much more so than the wife the wife is almost barely there right? because and they even show that it seems like the the wives are are understanding of the the, the lives that their husbands probably leave uh, uh, much more so Joe Pesci's wife you know she cleans up after him essentially uh in one scene and uh they they're the ones that really just don't ask questions ignorance is the best uh virtue there and yeah and but but still the so since they're um somewhat complicit in a way uh their weight isn't nearly as strong as the ones that they're trying to shield best in the children and even though it doesn't work yeah the relationship with the children um i think it was expertly done in the film because there isn't, I mean, there's been a lot said about like Anna Paquin not mm. having much dialogue in the film and why is she even in this thing and stuff like that. Uh, oh I no. think she's, oh she's no. doing good work because like you really feel that strain. Like it's, it's so much is conveyed without almost saying anything. Like you could sense that strain. You even see it when it's not her and you see, you know, as a young, uh, her as a young girl w- witnessing, you know, the, the relationship between her and, uh, I mean, um, De Niro and Pesci's character versus uh, him and Hoffa right. and just kind of the dynamic that she has with, you know, those two um, it is so different. Like she's scared of the Pesci character versus the Hoffa character. She, it's almost like a grandfatherly relationship. Right. And she, you, you know, you, you sense that towards the end when she finally just finally says something and, you know, you, you, you get all that pain across is like, why? Like, you know, she she's saying something, but really meaning something else, and I think that was really well done. Um, Andrew, and, wait, Andrew, you feel differently? Well, no, I, I was I was agreeing. I yeah. I um I honestly think Anna Paquin's performance may be the best performance in the film. 
Um, and I, I just this idea that you brought up that a lot of people are mad that she doesn't have very many lines and she's silent and that this is somehow a sign of Scorsese's misogyny. It just really frustrates me because I, I just want to shake those people and, and just say, did you even watch the movie? Like that's com- entirely the point. Yeah. Yeah. That they um, have a strained relationship. Like that's the point. It's, it's, if it's supposed to feel very clinical and they're not close. Like that's the point. Like, if she, if they had a a relationship where they were always fighting and always like at each other, like I think that would have been cliche and obvious. Right, and and even if, as you you suggested, this is supposed to be an unreliable narrative uh, narrator, his his version of the events in his head, the fact that he really can't remember any positive interactions with his daughter he can't remember any time in which she was really outspoken even in his his memory she's just this silent figure because he has no relationship with her and that silence and that that lack of presence makes the moments when she is there just so incredibly powerful. I feel like that character is the thematic focal point of the movie in, in many ways. Um, and Anna Paquin just, just absolutely kills it in those very few minutes that she's on screen. So yeah, I, I think Scorsese absolutely knows what he's doing with that character. I had mentioned the score earlier, Andrew, did you notice it at all? I remember thinking to myself, oh, I kind of like this. <laughs> but uh, in in the days since I've seen The Irishman, uh, it's kind of slipped my mind what exactly I liked about it. But I remember that in the moment, I did, it did stick out to me. I, I really like the introduction to some characters, like the more minor ones that are just given title cards to to show off the, the date that they died and how they died. That that was pretty interesting. Uh, but also other characters, more major characters, specifically Jimmy Hoffa. I, I really like his introduction and his development and, and how his story kind of unfolds in this movie. And and it's, it's just so interesting in that it, it almost... He's brought in as almost a sympathetic, like we're on his side type of character, but you see it just unravel towards the end of his his run in this movie, and it's really just something else. And although, wow, it, talk about wrapping history into this, a lot of history into this movie with the whole, uh, you know, congressional hearings, and you have Bobby Kennedy, and and then the assassination of of the president, and how how he steps out of the uh, union building and sees that the flag is a half mast. And when he goes and has it raised, I literally out loud said, holy shit. Can you imagine that? That, that was a powerful, powerful scene in terms of his relationship with, uh, with the president and, and the family and all that kind of stuff. Uh, what did you think, Armano? Yeah. Like, again, that, those are the, the moments where I'm like, did this really happen? Like, do we know that this really happened? Is this like part of history, like, or some urban legend that he actually did this? Is this like Marsco says he's saying to himself, like, hey, wouldn't it be crazy if, like, you know, he saw that and, you know, I, I, you know, I put this scene together where he goes up there and, and he hated, the Ken- like, to illustrate how much he hated the Kennedys and, you know, for, you know, to do, you know, to do that. Like, and I, I don't know. Like, I feel like I wish I, I kind of knew because, 
uh, moments like that where I'm like, wow, that's crazy. Like they went out and, and shot that scene where I'd always heard this happen, but like it wasn't like ever 100% like confirmed or anything like that. Like I feel like those are the moments in the film where I'm like, ah, oh, I wish I knew more about that. There were a lot of scenes where I'm like, ah, I wish I knew more about that. But, you know, again, it's hmm. not it's not the film's fault <laughs> that I wish I knew more about that. But like I'm, I, I just couldn't help but be like, man, I, I, in a three and a half hour film, I feel like I wanted more. And uh, <laughs> I, I think that's a that's a plus, because otherwise I, I, I was lamenting the idea that it was that long. Gotcha. Andrew, any other scenes that stuck out to you? Well, I, I like how the film references history and every once in a while you just get a, a little note about what's happening in the outside world politically. And it, it struck me as though Scorsese is really trying to connect the political situation with what's going on with these criminals and, and basically trying to imply, Hey, our whole country is based on around organized crime essentially, that uh, there's really not much difference between uh, Robert De Niro's character and Richard Nixon, for example. Yeah. Um, and and I thought that was a really nice little kind of theme undergirding the entire film. And getting back to what you, you mentioned, I'm glad you brought up uh, the little detail with the title cards. Um, that he puts over particular characters. I love how he's constantly throughout the entire movie just confronting the audience with the fact that these people died. Yes. We we cannot escape death. Yes. Most of the time, these people were killed violently. Yes. Um, so there's there's nothing glamorous about it at all. And then I love how, again, that final 45 minutes just makes you go, okay, well, which is worse to be killed violently or to live the rest of your life in that isolated limbo, so to speak. I mean, it's also kind of Scorsese kind of reckoning with his career and his, his, the lionization that's been awarded him of this genre and his mastery of it in terms of, of like, sure, you're, you're idolizing my accomplishments in a way, but look at the cost. Like, why are you, why are you celebrating these movies for their depiction of the, this ultimate violence and the, and the lives that are wrecked here? And, and it's almost like a coda on the on the audience, isn't it? I definitely think so, uh, especially because I think oftentimes Scorsese is viewed by people as someone who who glamorizes this criminal lifestyle. And I don't I think if you've watched his movies, it's pretty clear that he doesn't really sympathize with these guys oh, right. much at all sure, exactly. in any of his crime films. And yet with the Irishman, you know, in some of his previous crime films, you do get a sense at times is, Oh, look at all the money. Look at all the drugs. Look at how, I guess to a certain extent, cool or, or fun this life could be. You see why the protagonist is drawn to it at first even though eventually, of course, it backfires most of the time. Um, and in this film, I feel like he doesn't do that at all. Like at no point in the film did I feel like he was implying that this lifestyle could be any could have any sort of glamour in it at all. 
um, it really just seems like the main character. He just makes a decision to get involved and that's it. You know, we really don't see him becoming super wealthy. We don't see him having a grand old time enjoying his life as this as this criminal. He just goes through his life and ends up uh, isolated and in a form of spiritual purgatory Mm -hmm. for for all of his efforts. Um, And so I feel like this is Scorsese basically telling the audience, uh, you misunderstood my previous films, and I really want to make sure you understand just how much I really don't like these guys. <laughs> uh, Hermano, any last things before we wrap this up? Yeah, I guess just to add on to the idea that his other films potentially, like people got the wrong messages from them. Like mm-hmm. they thought that they were glorifying uh, the characters and like saying Goodfellas or a Casino or whatever, like I I don't know this the structure of this film this film felt so similar in, in the way that characters played out in in their outcomes that it 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 felt like he was just doing another version. But it's paced, of those other two films. It, it's paced and cut so differently that like Goodfellas in and Casino are are edited in such a manic uh, manic way where they they heighten the the realities of what's happening where this one it, it's so it's so staid almost it's very mature yeah it is it's it's a more mature film because it's dealing with real people more more important stuff that was ever going on in in goodfellas or casino for for instance but like I don't know. It just felt like, you know, like, you know, the the Ray Liotta character, again, is very similar to the Robert De Niro character in this, similar to the Robert De Niro character in Casino, where, like, you know, relatively humble beginnings that lead to, you know, them living the high life. And then inevitably something causes it to all come crashing down. Like, that's basically the structure of all three of the films. Hmm. Like, in this one, Jimmy Hoffa is the, the catalyst for it all to sort of come crashing down. Like it it was never the same after that, you know, for Robert De Niro in this film, like they, they inevitably got caught for whatever other crimes, not necessarily the, the, the crimes that are featured uh, prominently in the film, but like the outcome was the same and like them looking back, it's kind of like, you know, that, that, that final scene with uh, Joe Pesci in, in, in in these, he's kind of all of a sudden just out of nowhere, it just says like, you know, like, you know, Jimmy Hoffa, he, he was a good guy. And it starts to see, seem like he's going to say something good about him. But then he's like, but it was between us and him. Mm-hmm. So fuck him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so like, you know, it, it's just that simple. Like there sure. was, it, it's it's a true sociopathic way to look at like life. And it's weird. It's like, I'm not sure what to take away from that. It's like, you think he's going to be like, you know what, maybe we did the wrong thing. Or he's going to like be looking back at it with, you know, resentment. Oh no, he's, it, it's he's, not. He's it's not at all. He's like, nah, fuck it. It was, it was he, him or he's us. He's making it to what the 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 theme of this lifestyle is, <laughs> you know. So yeah, basically, there's like everyone's a sociopath. Basically, what, I, you know what I really found funny is is when he sends De Niro off on the plane, and De Niro comes back on the plane, and, and Pesci is still in the car just waiting. <laughs> like, how long yeah, did it take? He, he said it was. Yo, you be back in like three hours. I'm I like, know, he's sitting in the what? car for three hours. <laughs> Yeah, seriously, just chilling in the car. <laughs> um, I, I, I want to close with say, reading this one sentence from Pyro of the True Romance podcast. He wrote on Letterboxd, uh, this is like taking a trip to a Scorsese theme park. Yeah, 
it's a good way to summarize it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, sure. Uh, Andrew, what grade would you give this? I would give this film an A. A. Yeah, I would. I'm giving an A minus, but this is a film that look. I, I'm. It's it's going to be a long time before I revisit this thing, uh, simply to, just due to the length of it. But I can see myself rating it higher uh, upon a rewatch, and it's one of those movies that has really stuck in my mind since I saw it, and it's been. There's a lot of things going on that that I, has been ringing around in my head that it's just really stays with you and. Uh, so I'm going to give it an A minus for now, at least Hermano. <clears throat> yeah. Um, I think I'm at an A minus too. Uh, I'd probably give his other two in this like trilogy of mob films that I've lumped together, probably like an A to an A plus, but, um, much like the, the famous line from Goodfellas, I think, uh, Marty should have gotten his shine box, put a little bit more polish on this. Oh, wow. Just a, just a little bit more polish. Would have been as good as Goodfellas. All right, that does it for this episode of the First Time Watchers podcast. Donate via patreon.com slash firsttimewatchers or buy stuff at zazzle.com slash firsttimewatchers. And Wally would say, follow us at, on Twitter at 1STTimewatchers. Or write to us at our email, firsttimewatchers at gmail.com. Uh, download our episodes at iTunes and Stitcher. Feel free to leave a review. Uh, leave any feedback. We love it. Uh, if you have any suggestions of movies for us to watch, please send a tweet or an email. And instead of movie recommendations, I think since this is the final episode of the season and we won't return until our best of 2019, why don't we uh, list some movies that we, 2019 movies that we want to catch up on or, uh, or watch that are upcoming uh, before you make your end of lists? Uh, Andrew. Um, so one film that I've heard is absolutely fantastic that I haven't had a chance to watch yet is a Chinese film called Ash is Purest White. So I'm really looking forward to seeing that. It's a new film by Jia Zhangke, and I've heard it's excellent. Uh, in terms of movies that either have come out recently or are about to come out, uh, I really have heard good things about uh, A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood which I have not seen yet. It's good. Uh, I'm looking forward to that. Uh, I also would like to see Marriage Story mm -hmm. and uh, Little Women. Uh, uh, Little Women is uh, probably my most anticipated film of the year because Greta Gerwig has earned her uh, a lifetime of trust with me in terms of uh, Lady Bird because Lady Bird is a phenomenal fucking film. And uh, has earned uh, viewership for life for me now. So Little Woman is absolutely my most anticipated film of the year, along with uh, 1917. Uh, looking forward to Uncut Gems and uh, Portrait of a Lady on Fire. I'm so upset that it's coming out this weekend in New York and L.A., very limited there, and isn't going to go quote-unquote wide until February uh, 14th, I think. Ugh, I'm so so disappointed in that. Uh, marriage Story, as you said. Um, First Love, a Takashi Miike film. Uh, and uh, I, I think that's about it. What about you, Hermano? Uh, tops on my list is The Lighthouse. Uh, hoping to get to see that soon. Uh, Parasite, uh, Uncut Gems, um, the new Jumanji. <laughs> um, Got to watch all those rock films. Uh-huh. Uh, marriage story. Uh, yeah, I think that's it. Might be missing one or two there, but those are like, oh, 1917, since I've heard uh, pretty high praise for that. Oh, and Star and, Wars. Uh, what about yeah, Star, I think Wars? That's it. Star Wars. 
Oh, Star Wars, yeah. Of course. That, that one's a given, though. That's not like a... Of course, it is. Uh, Andrew, thank you so much for joining us. No problem. It's good to be back. Thanks for having me back on. Well, I, I say thank you with hesitancy because those... <laughs> my God, those jokes. Those... Painful, painful. Oh, 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 before I forget. Oh, no. Um, oh, no. Uh, uh, no. I just want to say that <sighs> when it comes to Marvel, overall, Scorsese is right, but the first Iron Man is still pretty good, and so is Gemini Man. Okay. All right. Uh, <laughs> Andrew, uh, where, if people really are desperate, where do they, could, <laughs> can they find you online? Oh, you can find me on Twitter and Letterboxd at Writer Andrew, and you can find some of my past writing at writerandrew.com. All right. Uh, so this is our final episode of the season for 2019, and um, we'll probably have a couple of bonus episodes. <coughs> cough, Star Wars. <coughs> cough. Uh, but uh, stay tuned for our return in February when we break down the best films of 2019. That's the first time watchers podcast because we like to watch. want to warn andrew that it may not be good to test new material on us if you bomb it's going to be live for everyone to witness oh there's no that's editing. totally fine there's no editing around this puppy believe you me <laughs> tim's gonna throw in a laugh track just to not hurt andrew's feelings <laughs> crickets as as somebody who spent uh, a summer a few years ago uh doing open mics and practicing stand-up comedy i can tell you uh Bombing will not be uh, an issue. I've got experience, so it'll it'll be fine. Did did that experience not, uh, you know, foster your desire to to do better and and keep going at it? Uh, I got to a to a point where I was like, okay, I've I've I can cross this off my bucket list. Say I've done it. I feel I'm not the worst. Mm-hmm. And I'm done. That's all I need. Fair enough. <laughs> Fair enough. Now, for clarification, so. you just said open mic, but you mean like open mic, like a comedy type open mic? Yes. Or Okay. Yes. No, you know what killed my karaoke dream was, what was that movie with uh, Huey Lewis and uh, Gwyneth Paltrow? Gwyneth. Do you remember that? Huey Lewis and Gwyneth Paltrow? They Huey. basically went and like they went, they were like hustlers, but for the karaoke scene. What? It, it, it's like that Paul Newman film, the, um, what's it called? The pool one? Oh, The Color of the Money. The Hustler? The Color of Money. Or oh, the... Color of Money or The Hustler, yeah. Um, but for karaoke. You don't it know what I'm talking amazing. about? It sounds amazing. It sounds incredible. Hold on, I'm going to look. Uh, duets? Um, oh, duets. What? Look up duets. Yeah, Huey Bruce Lewis Paltrow. is in it. Bruce Paltrow. Huey Lewis, yeah. Gwyneth Paltrow, Paul Giamatti, a professional karaoke hustler, reconnects with his daughter in a board suburban businessman turns outlaw karaoke singer among other pl- what yeah what this movie it? killed my karaoke dream because i was like there are karaoke hustlers out there <laughs> holy shit 
I'm never going up there. I'm going to get crushed by some dude like Michael Buble in disguise going up there or some shit. What is this? <laughs> oh, Paul Giamatti's in this. He's also one of the uh, the hustlers, I believe. What is a – how do you hustle in karaoke? I, it, do you, I don't know. They, they make it seem like it's it's like the color of money for karaoke basically. But like you – people bet on karaoke? There's like competitions I guess. Sort oh. of like you go to a bar and there's like a karaoke competition and – you know, there are these people that like drive club to club, basically, and and oh. hustle. Like they go up there, pretending like, oh, you know, I'm, I'm just a regular guy, just gonna walk up on the stage, and all of a sudden they fucking crush. And people, I guess, bet on it. I think in the film too. Unbelievable! Outlaw karaoke singer. This this is this is the weirdest Dude, plot line I've ever heard. It's, it's not a bad film. I I would actually tell you guys to watch it. It's it's. Okay, I wouldn't. I'm not gonna like, hey, you know, sing its praises. It's, it's, sing its I, praises. IMDb, IMDb <laughs> rating is backing you up. Six point one seems okay to me. <laughs> <It's> okay. <laughs>